God made me to be. And how God made me to be me. I'm not a betting man, but I would bet I'm not the only one in this room who's ever struggled with this idea. If only I was. If only I had. So I said there's three points in this text, and we're going to address one of them this morning. First of all, we're going to learn that contentment comes when we are rejoicing in God's provision, which leads to contentment. When we're actually rejoicing in God's provision, which leads to contentment. Paul begins, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. This word rejoice is one that we're, we're quite familiar with. What is this word, caro? It, it means to be in a state of gladness or happiness or well-being. And, and you know, back up to when we introduced this letter, isn't Paul, wait a minute, where is Paul at this moment? He's in Rome, under house arrest, basically imprisoned. But because of his faith, his deep-seated faith in Christ, he lives with this sense of joy. And not like a, a, a glued on, paste on, fake smile. Like deep abiding from within joy. Remember the entire theme of this book in Philippians has to do with joy. Our definition is what? Having this deep abiding understanding that God in his sovereignty works all circumstances. What? For our good and for his glory. That's the definition of joy we have used. So first, you need to know that Paul, like all of us, has what? He has needs. He's not shy to mention that. Thankfully, God has allowed the local church of Jesus Christ at Philippi to provide for those needs. And we have to kind of understand the setting a little bit. Paul, under house arrest, the whole prison system in, in this first century kind of Roman Empire world is very, very different than it is today. You see, there's basic needs, clothes, food, medical care and attention, needs of what? He's a student of books and paper and parchment, communication outside of this restriction. All of these needs had to come from support of others that were without the prison system. Now, we know that Paul was what? He was a single man. And yet, apparently, he had a really, really big family with many brothers and sisters in Christ. And in his own personal testimony, he shares every single need that I had has been met. And he shares that there's this deep and abiding sense of, of satisfaction and joy and contentment even in the restricted situation that he was in. What, what does this lead to? It leads us, what? Rather than looking out at the circumstances, Paul models for us you need to look within. If you look within, you see blessing after blessing after blessing, and when you find blessing, you will sense contentment you will live what a life of simply being 
content. You see, the definition of this word content literally means satisfied with, with what one is. Satisfied with what one has. This is the definition of contentment. Not wanting more. Definition of contentment. Not wanting anything else. Satisfied. Ease of mind. Contentment. The state of being what? Content. Just stop for a moment and think with me. Not wanting anything else. Just pause on that. Not wanting anything more than you already have. Not only does that seem strange for us, it's, it's actually foreign. At some level, not wanting anything else, not wanting anything more, it almost goes against the way that we have been hardwired, even from children, as we grow up. What? Part of the American dream is to always want more. That's what, that's, 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 that's America. I mean, you work hard and you, what? We enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuits of happiness. This means what? That it is normal for us. It's not expected for us to ever really be satisfied. There's always a sense of seeking more, of striving more, of wanting more and more and more and more and more. And we live in what? We live in an age and a day of materialism. Covetousness. Greed. If we were to step back, every single one of us, every single one of us, live a comfortable life. And yet for some reason, we still find ourselves at some level complaining. We still find ourselves at some level kind of worrying and fretting over the nuances of these tiny little worries that we have in our world that we have piled up to make massive worries. I can't believe there's so many weeds on my lawn. I'm picking those dandelions out and like they, I pick them out one night, they just pop up the next day. I can't believe this. That, that, that's, like, that's the world that we're kind of living in. Trivial matters. Rather than stepping back and simply seeing all that God has already miraculously given and provided for us. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to, 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 to think about rather... Rather than what we want to have, let's just pause for a moment and think about what we already have. Okay? So rather than like, if only, you know, if I could just achieve and work a little bit more and make a little bit more, then, then I could have that. Rather than thinking about what we want, just stop. Think about what we already have. And I understand this is hard for us. Because for some reason, we, we don't really see it. I'm preparing and looking forward um, over the summer months to be preaching in Old Testament texts, 1 and 2 Samuel. 
So I've been working my way through the entire Old Testament very slowly, kind of methodically. And, and we just, I, I love to look at all of Scripture big picture, okay? And we know kind of like the rough history, and we have to kind of understand. So people dialogue or ask questions, we know. Creation, fall, flood, Noah. Noah has three sons, one of them Shem. What, from that line comes Abraham, this chosen one. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the 12 sons. Remember, they go down into captivity, into to, to bondage in Egypt. God raises up Moses and leads them out into the wilderness. He hits the rock. It doesn't go well. They all die there, but there's the next generation. Joshua leads them out, and the people are what? They are fierce for the Lord. But they're not content. They want a king like everybody else, and so God graciously gives them what? Saul head and shoulders above everyone else. He walked in a room, that's our man. He was a wreck. David, a man after God's own heart. Solomon, Solomon, wiser than any other man. And what, it just goes to his head. He's a wreck. The kingdom divides, all heck breaks loose. The place is an absolute mess. God faithfully raises up prophets to speak truth. Elijah. Off into a fiery chariot into heaven. And then in Elijah's place comes this other one. His name is Elisha. This past week I've been reading carefully through the book of 2 Kings. And I've been learning lessons about this guy Elisha. And he, he literally is referred to time and time again as the man of God. They don't even call him his name. It's just Elisha, the man of God. The man of God said this. The man of God went here. And I'm like, that is so cool. To make my way through the Old Testament, we see God's provision all over the place. This week in 2 Kings, Elisha, God's man, the man of God, is speaking truth into the lives of the Israelites. What's happening is that the Israelites are basically in battle with everyone and anyone. Primarily the Syrians. So the Syrians are trying to attack Israel, but the man of God, Elisha, has truth from God. And basically, um, God gives Elisha an understanding of where the Syrian armies are going to move before they move there. So, so every time the Assyrians have an idea, we're going to attack them over here. Already the man of God, Elisha, goes to the Israeli um, generals and says, Oh yeah, by the way, you're going to be attacked over there. And they would send all the armies of Israel over there. And they would surprise the ones that were attacking them and they would destroy the Assyrians. Happened over and over and over again. They cannot surprise the man of God. The king of Syria is frustrated by this, and he literally asks, where is this man of God? We've got to get rid of him. They find this man of God, Elisha, in Dothan, a city called Dothan. So the king of Syria sends an entire army of soldiers and chariots literally to surround the city of Dothan. Elisha has a young servant 
It says the man of God has a servant who woke, who woke up early in the morning and said to Elisha as he looked out, uh, boss, we got some trouble here. We're surrounded. Listen very carefully to the word of God. Listen very carefully to what happens in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15, 16, and 17. When the servants of the man of God rose early in the morning, he went out and, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, get up, boss. What shall we do? Elisha said this, he said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Elisha's praying, please open the eyes of this young servant, this young man. Listen to the response. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You understand what's happening here? Like big bad guys, they're surrounding the city of Dalton. They want the, the man of God dead. And everyone's terrified, and this young man's like, we're cooked. Elijah says, no, no, you just need to, to open your eyes and see. And what? And surrounding the enemy were thousands and tens of thousands of horses and chariots in on fire, representing what God has, what? Circling around, protecting and providing do you want to understand that God has provision? God, a sovereign God, all-knowing, all-powerful. God has what provision for us in ways that you and I can't even see it. Do you realize that? Yeah, but it's, it's like really dark out there. No, no, God knows. Yeah, but like I don't know. And if I just had a little bit more and, and like I'm worried about. No, God has Every one of us in his sovereign loving care, his grace and his mercy wrapped and protected. The author of Hebrews says it like this. Think about the book of Hebrews. The entire letter is pointing to the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole letter. It literally concludes Hebrews chapter 13. It concludes with verse Five, keep your life free from the love of money. Listen to this. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man can do to you. You, you, you realize what's happening here? That every single one of us 
have everything that we need and more in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think what happens is that we get like our whole stomachs knotted up and worry like if only I was, if only I had, if only I could be. And we're not realizing what God has already offered to us. Everything. Everything. I've been reading this past week um, Jeremiah Burroughs. A, a book, it's just an absolute prize. It's literally referred to as the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs is a Puritan. That's why I wore my Puritan vest this morning to represent the Puritans. Wendy's not here. Wendy hates this vest, and so when she goes, I'm allowed to wear it. And I eat Hungry Man TV dinners, and I love them too. Jeremiah Burroughs, in 1646, writes a book on the idea of contentment. For some reason, I'm thinking for a moment, okay, 1646, what do you have to be content about? There's no hot water. There's no hot showers. There's no indoor plumbing. There's no bathrooms. You've got to go outside in the cold. And the guy's writing a book on the idea of contentment. Uh, he lives in a time, there's, there's no thousand thread count sheets. There's no heated vehicle. There's no four-wheel drive. There's no Salisbury steak, hungry man dinners. There's nothing in 1646 that you and I would wake up and be excited about. And yet he writes this idea, he writes this book on the hidden jewel of contentment. What is a Puritan? have to teach us today. We're America. About contentment. Listen to this. The author John Piper writes on Puritan writers. So he comments, a guy from today comments about Puritan writers. Listen to this. No one comes close to the skill that they have, speaking of Puritan writers, in taking the razor-like scalpel of Scripture and lancing the boils of my corruption cutting out the cancers of my God-belittling habits of mind and amputating the limbs of my disobedience. They are simply in a class by themselves. I think we should give heed to what the Puritans have to say. So Jeremiah Burroughs, in 1646, writes this book on contentment, and he keeps referring to it as a quietness of spirits. I just love that definition. What is contentment? It is a quietness of spirit. He adds, it's a very seasonable cordial to revive the drooping saints in sad and sinking times. I almost read sad and stinking times. I love how he actually teaches us what contentment is by telling us what it is not. He says this, and I quote, that this contentment, this, this um, quieted spirit that we're searching for and can have through the Lord Jesus Christ, he says that this contentment is opposed to murmuring and repining at the hand of God. Repining, I had to look it up. It's, it means moping. That contentment is opposed to moping. Contentment is opposed to 
vexing and fretting. Contentment is opposed to tumultuousness of spirit. Contentment is opposed to unsettledness and unfixedness of spirit. Distracting, heart-eating cares and fears. Sinking discouragements. Contentment is opposed to sinful shiftings and shirkings out for ease and help. Contentment is opposed to desperate risings of the heart against God in a way of rebellion. And I thought about, you know, that description of what people should not be doing? That's really a pretty accurate description of what most people in America are doing today. And God forbid that some of you in this very room this morning are doing in in what? Vexing and fretting and murmuring and moping. That you live with a sense of unsettledness and unfixedness of spirit. Well, well, you're kind of tough on me today, Pastor Tim. No, because this was a description of the way I lived the majority of my life. Just, just, just moping that God didn't make me what I think he should have made me. So how do we, how do we take this, Paul in prison... How how do we apply that to this morning? Three points very quickly in closing. Number one, be content with who God has made you. Which means what? Don't compete against someone else. Be content with who God has made you. Pause for a moment on the psalmist's words in Psalm 139 that says, "What You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I love the fact that there's only one of you. Look at your fingerprint. Look at your fingerprint. Every single person has their unique design. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah, but if I was just a little bit taller and my nose wasn't so big and I had like really thick co-hair, like, no, no. Be content with who God has made you. Number two, be content with where God has placed you, which means what? Don't complain. You don't have the right to complain. We are surrounded by God's sovereignty and his protection and provision and blessing. Job. Go to Job in the very first chapter. In all of the hardship and heartache and all of the misery. And he realizes and he makes the statement, what? Naked I came from my mother's womb. And guess what? I'm taking nothing with me. And and he understands what? I don't have, I don't have the right to complain. Thirdly and finally, by way of application, be content with what God has given you. Don't compare. Yeah, but my neighbor's lawn is so... Don't compare. Be content with what you have. Most of us blessed beyond measure and we're still striving for more and as we strive and seek and search for more it's eating us from within first timothy chapter six 
Paul, the same author, writes in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take what? We cannot take anything out of the world. I love this, but if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. Looking out amongst you this morning, I think it's pretty obvious that we all have, what, plenty of food. We are all clothed, therefore, upon the authority of the word of God, we are and will be content. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I thank you for your reminder from your word that teaches us um, how to live, how to behave, what to believe. Father, give us the strength to be obedient to you and to you alone and to live for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.